Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I have had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. Hello everyone, you are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zelwyn Heidi to continue our discussion of the book of Daniel. Zelwyn, how are you? Doing well, Willie. Today was a little bit overcast and gray and kind of rained a little bit, so I'm hoping it didn't freeze over, but we'll kind of just have to see how it goes. I'm sure it's a lot more cheery down your part of the way, though, wouldn't you say? It was pretty warm today, although overcast and threatening to rain, but nothing ever really came. And so I think spring is here, though, you know, other than some storms that are just part of it, uh, but hoping that we can, you know, keep up the good weather, planting soon, hopefully, and we'll we'll go from there. Wholesome. I can't plant until after Memorial Day, so... Well, that's that's just, what I, at this point, I'm hoping uh, for a uh, nice enough uh, Easter weather that our sunrise service will be held outside as scheduled. So that would be incredibly wholesome, right? Uh, <laughs> I mean, how, we should, you know, we should have more of that sort of thing. I think outdoor services. Yeah. Oh, I don't 100% know. agree. Yeah, open air kind of stuff. There, there's a there is a power and a wholesomeness to open air preaching that is. Hard to, to capture in anything else, honestly. Yeah, somebody will come and tell me that it's not in the rubrics or something. But it is in the Acts of the Apostles. So I feel pretty good. I feel safe. I feel like, yeah, I feel like we're going to be okay. I yeah. mean, or... And, or and, I'm, and I'm just talking straight up preaching, you know, full bore scripture, you know, outside. I don't mean like beach masses or something like that. Right. I mean, literally Ezra (laughs) preaching on the platform, Exactly. neither here nor there. (laughs) Right. Storming the pulpit at a convention. I don't know. (laughs) These are the ideas I get. Uh, It'd be a good time, though. But I suppose we should continue our discussion of Daniel. And uh, where where do you want to begin that discussion, Willie? Well, sure. Let's re- let's remind the readers that we're in the second chapter, and the first chapter deals with uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being tempted by the king with the things of this world. They refuse to be tempted by those things, and God strengthens them through it. So they're not tempted with rich food. They're more learned. They're wiser than the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel, in particular, is gifted with the interpretation of dreams. Something that's perhaps very strange to us because we tend to think about dreams nowadays in the most boring clinical way (laughs) that my dreams are just my subconscious or my dreams are that meat lover's pizza I ate just before I went to sleep or something like that. And in the Bible, in these instances, the dreams have have a meaning. Uh, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar is having a prophetic dream. But he needs the prophet to come and interpret that dream. Very interesting. Uh, Very interesting stuff. So he recognizes this dream has meaning, but none of the astrologers are going to really know what to do. This this happens more than once in the book. 
Right. And Nebuchadnezzar is such an interesting character because, and we'll see this through the next couple chapters, he is always coming so close to the truth. And then he'll throw uh, people of God into an oven. So, <laughs> Well, I mean, I suppose the question could be asked, you know, how, how long did Nineveh repent in the book of Jonah? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure that that generation, at least for a while, were sincere in their beliefs, but too often I think they go back to what they what they had, like a dog returning to its vomit, as it were. It's, it's all too easy. Mm-hmm. But I think with with Nebuchadnezzar in this case, we're going to see something about his character as well, especially in terms of his personality, because of the way he deals with this dream, and we'll also see that going ahead. He is certainly an important figure in understanding the book of Daniel, at least the early chapters of the book of Daniel. And uh, we have to consider, I don't know, that he is impetuous, he is conceited, he's full of himself, and his humbling will be a large part of the early parts of this book. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Everything I was saying was not to say Nebuchadnezzar, good guy. But Nebuchadnezzar will have these wake-up calls. Yeah, you know, Zelwyn, you know, one of the sad things about um, believing in God is how close some people can come to the kingdom right, and still not make it. I mean, there is a way to hell from the gates of heaven, to paraphrase our Puritan boy there. But uh, <laughs> it is true. And we don't like to think about that because, once again, it's. I think it's a case of, oh, well, they weren't elect anyway. So what are you going to do? And that's just such a weak, and it's just a weak way to look at it. That's why your preaching has no power because you don't believe the Holy Ghost works through the Word. Based. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you know, for all of our, uh, you know, we, we get accused of being Calvinists and it's wrong, but some of our guys sound like caricatures of Calvinists, don't they? Well, yeah, especially because when like the dealing with the liturgy as, you know, the so-called beacon of the elect and that sort of thing. I mean, it it really does it really does smack of this kind of caricature that we accuse others of. And we should be very careful not only of how we speak of other people, but how we approach things like election or God's, you know, the power of God or the working of the Holy Spirit or things like that. Yeah, election is supposed to be a comfort for the believer, and sometimes we've turned it into a couch potato kind of approach to things. You know, I don't think we'd be doing this podcast if we actually believed that. Fair. But I, I'm digressing a little bit. Uh, we're, we're not Calvinists, but and we do believe that people uh, can be in danger of falling away. And it's such a tragedy. I mean, to to be like Nebuchadnezzar, to have the like God humbling you, and then clearing your mind again, and then you, you probably still don't make it into the kingdom, you know? To be able to acknowledge that there is no God like this, that no other God does this, and then to still go back into your paganism. Very sad. But parable of the soils there. It is what it is. But it is a tragedy, because you'll... can. I mean, how? what's sadder? To have never known the truth, or to have had the truth and come so close? The second by far. Yeah. And there's a lesson there for all of us that we need to to guard ourselves to uh, make sure that we are still in the faith, that we are in the word, that we are not succumbing to the temptations of the world, a world that is increasingly uh, crazier, 
a world that uh, will increasingly seem to make more sense once we get to the prophetic chapters of Daniel, the visionary chapters. Perhaps it makes more sense. You know, we're going to deal with the rise and fall of great empires in this episode, and perhaps we're living in the rise and fall of one of those, or the fall of one of those right now, Zelwyn. I don't know. Nevertheless, a lot to be learned here, uh, both personally and uh, we'll say corporately as well. Sure, sure. Well, I think we should probably at least get a good layout of the chapter here because it's a long one, arguably one of the longest in the book of Daniel, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, just kind of a a general overview of the book. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream Mm -hmm. and this dream troubles him and he wants to know the answer. His wise men are unable to give him the answer to this dream. And this is why he seeks out Daniel. Daniel reveals it to him and shows that it is a prophecy of what is to come, at least down to the coming of the kingdom of God, which we will see in just a little bit. Nebuchadnezzar, for his part, uh, especially as we move into chapter three, he will misunderstand the purpose of this dream. And that's why we have a lot of what he's doing in chapter three. But I think it's helpful for us to see the purpose of the dream in in showing us, would you say, the the providence of God, right? That God is the one who is yeah. in control of all things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, his hand is in the rising and fall of nations. Uh, they would have no authority if it wasn't given to them from above. And they all fall. They they become progressively greater, well, to a point, and then it seems to kind of go downhill by the time you get to the bottom of the... I mean, I guess it depends on how you look at the empires. Right. You know, if if you're a Greece fan or a Rome fan, how you're going to look at it? <laughs> I mean, I mean, you, you do have empires which you say, like, historically are getting greater and greater, but there is also a sense in which the vision shows them degrading as they go further down. So, I mean, we'll have to we'll have to consider that vision when we get to it. But how do you want to how do you want to start this chapter? I mean, how do you want to start breaking down the, the the details? All right. Well, let's let's just talk about what Nebuchadnezzar does. He brings his sorcerers and all those people together. He brings his magicians, and he said. You know, tell tell your servants the dream will show the interpretation. That's what the the Chaldeans say to the king in Aramaic. They're 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 sort of lost here, right? Repeatedly, hey, tell the dream we'll show you the interpretation. Tell them we'll show you the interpretation. I mean, how do you want to? What are you? Do they flatter him? Is that what you? Is that what we want to say here? No, I, um, I think I think the the big thing to to get from this first part is something about Nebuchadnezzar himself because. He's had this dream, and he wants the interpretation of the dream, but he refuses to actually spell it out. I mean, because like you think of like Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, when he has the dream, he tells it in detail to his magicians, but they're not able to answer it. Nebuchadnezzar, however, because he doesn't want any right. stalling or anything, he basically says, you have to tell me what the dream is. That way I will know that you actually have its interpretation. Right. I'm just saying that, that I mean, if you look at the way that they answer him. Right. You got to make me know the name of the term. You shall be torn limb from your house, shall be laid in ruins. Uh, you know, you got to tell me what it is. 
I'm going to give you all these things. And they answer second time, let the king tell his servants and we will show its interpretation. You know, tell, tell us and we'll let him know. He's got an issue of always being, so you're going to get this in chapter three and four where they're just confused. And all Nebuchadnezzar seems to want is his own glory. So his magician, sorcerers, and everything are either going to help him set up idols or they're going to not say anything despite these threats. And so all he ever receives is either bad answers, no answers, or some kind of flattery. And that's what I'm, that's what I'm calling the idolatry. Okay. Uh, they're, they're doing it to, to, to please this man. Um, Daniel, you're absolutely right. Uh, God is going to reveal the dream to him in a vision. Right. Now, that's the interesting thing to me, because dreams and visions are closely connected experientially, I would imagine. A, a vision is something of a waking dream. Would that be fair? I think, that, I think that's really the distinction. Yeah, and I I think in the in this case because throughout the Old Testament especially the visions take lots of different forms. Yeah, and it's specifically um, a vision in the night. Right. Here. Not right. called a dream, so it's a vision in the night. Okay, but that's that's the thing. This is this is such a different space than what we're used to talking about. Uh, this is why Daniel is so fascinating. This is God who is. This is how he is speaking at this point. Right. And you are to trust the mouth of the prophet. You are to trust, uh, you should be able to trust a biblical prophet to bring the true word of God. Principle is very sound. People are still going to reject it, but, you know, or in Nebuchadnezzar's case, embrace it and then immediately reject it again. (laughs) Well, especially because Nebuchadnezzar's pride really is a lot of the, the focus of this chapter and the next one as well. I mean, he actually has to be physically humbled in this book before he finally kind of gets it. So the fact that he is acting in this way, even despite, I would say, Daniel revealing the the dream to him, says something about how he perceives the world. Right. Right. Um, I think it's interesting what they say to the king, uh, what the pagans say. Uh, The thing the king asks is difficult. They say that again. And no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Mm-hmm. You know, you're you're going to get the true God who is just going to break in to the world, right? You know, and uh, their gods seem so distant, so far off in the text of Daniel. He's not dwelling with men. He he's just they're not real, of course. Right. But even if they're demons, which they could be, they're still seen as some kind of far off. And here is, and it's it's just this contrasting of absent gods with a very present God. Right. That I find interesting. Well, and especially because Nebuchadnezzar conceives of himself as something of a god. Mm-hmm. I, it's, I know it's complicated when it comes to understanding Near Eastern kingship and stuff like that. It's complicated how they actually understand themselves, but they do see themselves at least as partly divine. Right. And for him to basically say, you have to do this or I'll tear you limb from limb. It does show that he is, I mean, his conceit, his own self-estimate, he is a man who needs to be humbled. Right. And uh, he's about to kill the the sorcerers. Right. And then Daniel shows up. <laughs> and, Thank- <laughs> Thankfully yeah. for them. Yeah, but this no. idea of leader of the empire as semi-divine, 
this is one I want to hope. Well, maybe we'll talk about it later in the episode if we remember. But we're going to go through Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. All of their leaders are going to see themselves as divine. But we're going to, we should probably talk about whether the leaders of the broken kingdoms today see themselves as divine. That'll be fun. That will be, yeah. I think I think that will be helpful for understanding the applications of this chapter, right? But as as far as the uh, the actual dream itself, and maybe this is where we'll just kind of talk a little bit about the details. Uh, the dream itself is a vision of a statue, right? Mm-hmm. And the statue is composed of well a few different parts: a head which is made of gold, mm-hmm. uh, a body which is made of silver. Legs, which are made of bronze, if I remember correctly. Is that right? Yeah. And then uh, the feet mix uh, iron and then the, you know, the, yeah. And then the actual feet, uh, partly of iron and partly of clay. Yeah. And it's th- like, yeah. It's a head, chest and arms, belly and thighs, legs and feet. Yeah. Yeah. Legs and feet. So you, you have this composite statue being basically a picture of what is to come. But Nebuchadnezzar, for his part, does not yet understand that. He is terrified by the vision because he has no means to interpret it. All he's been, all he sees is what is before him. And Neodano shows up and says, The mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. He knows why he's coming here and why this is going to happen. And, you know, there's, so maybe we should just read the vision, just the encapsulation that he gives to it, because, you know, you just did it. But when you hear it all together, you, O king, saw and behold a great image. This image, mighty and exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron, partly of clay, As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. There's a whole sermon right there. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's and, a lot to unpack in it, for sure. Right, and that's the, that's what... So imagine you're Nebuchadnezzar. That's the dream you have. You mm-hmm. see this statue. You can tell that it's made of the different parts, and then this stone not made by hands appears and crushes it, pulverizes it to the point that it's blown away like chaff and not a trace of them could be found. That's what you see, and it's, and it's, and it's really sticking with Nebuchadnezzar. Well, especially because dreams like this in the scriptures where God is speaking to a man through the medium of a dream, it's always obvious that that's what's happening. This isn't him saying like, man, I had such a weird dream last night. Yeah, this is, thing. this is something is happening here. Right. There is something about this dream that, that I need to know what it means. I mean, that's really what it, what it comes down to. Well, Zell, we got to take our first break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken right after this.
Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. We're talking about the second chapter of Daniel and the vision uh, that he has given that reveals to him the meaning of King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Well, all right, Zelwyn, we summarized uh, the, the dream a bit. So now let's, let's start to dig into it. Okay. So Daniel interprets the dream to Nebuchadnezzar, especially in, uh, starting in verse 36. And he basically explains it as being symbolic of a number of kingdoms. And those kingdoms um, are represented by the various parts. So he begins with the head of gold, in this case, being representative of his own kingdom, the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. And so that is Babylon. I mean, I think I think that's a pretty straightforward interpretation. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I don't know if anybody can really argue with that one. Right. Okay. Now he says another kingdom is going to come after you, and it will be inferior to you. So as silver is inferior to gold, at least in the biblical mindset, this kingdom which comes after it will be inferior to Babylon. Now. I think it's fair to say that these kingdoms are represented again later in the book of Daniel in chapter 7 as the four great beasts. Do you, I mean, would right. you agree with that interpretation? Or? Yeah, I mean, it all seems to match up very, very simply. So if, if that's the case, then the bear, which we meet in Daniel 7, and we'll talk a lot more about it when we get to Daniel 7, is representative of the uh, Persian Empire. The, the composite, uh, Pers- the Persians and the Medes. And so I think in this case, uh, Babylon is succeeded by the Silver Kingdom, which of course is the Persians, which we will see actually happen within the book of Daniel itself uh, when Darius comes to power, uh, right. conquering Belshazzar. So Babylon gives way to Persia. That's what Daniel is saying is happening. Mm-hmm. Okay. The third kingdom to come, uh, the kingdom of bronze, I think it's fair to say is is a parallel to the leopard in Daniel 7, uh, the four-headed beast with wings. And I, I think it's very fair to say that that kingdom is representative of Greece. Mm-hmm. I mean, would you, would you disagree with that, Willie? Or? No, I, I wouldn't. No. Okay. Because um, the, the swiftness of Greece... Uh, especially the under Alexander the Great, is why it's depicted as a leopard in Daniel 7. Now, I know you probably don't like the idea of Greece being <laughs> depicted as being bronze in compared to Babylon. I mean, what, how do we... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, um, we're, 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 we're Greco-Roman respecters here. Um, right. Yeah, you know, but, but, you know, when you start to get to the particulars of these <laughs> of these cultures... You know, it's you start comparing them. I don't know who who's worse, who's better, but we do seem as as good Westerners to to uphold Greece and Rome quite a bit. But yeah, I think for most people, they think of Greece as mightier than Babylon, and right. so to put them as bronze rather than gold would seem a bit strange. Well, and and I think it's also interesting because the success of kingdoms that we've seen so far. Even as they're depicted as degrading, it, they, historically they're actually getting bigger. Yeah, they're bigger and more powerful and more influential. So it, it must be something else 
about mm-hmm. these kingdoms that makes them degrading. It's not their power right. or their you know or the the size of their territory. Yeah. It's got to be something else. Because the last kingdom will be the greatest one. Right. And it's going to pulverize all of them. Right. Right. And mm-hmm. and so yeah, it's not just a size thing. There is some some they are getting weaker. And I don't know if it's simply because every successive generation is closer to the end. Could be. Something like that. Um, that we are not actually progressing as far as humans go, but we are de- degressing in a way. If you really want to get uh, wild, you could argue that it could be, how do you want to say, their more composite nature as you go further along. Oh, ba- that's a fun one. Yeah. Because <laughs> Babylon is pretty much a monoculture. Yeah. Media, well, media, the Medes and the Persians are a composite. Well, the whole first chunk of this book is Nebuchadnezzar trying to destroy the culture of of um, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Right. Now, and, now that's now that's true. You know, Rome does force certain aspects upon itself of of itself upon a culture, but the Celts and the Gauls and the Germanic peoples are somewhat allowed to keep that, to right. keep their distinctives, um, and that could have been a distance thing. But they have to give some homage, pinch some incense. But Babylon's right. not quite as tolerant as as the later kingdoms would be. I mean, even yeah. Greece, for that matter, um, under Alexander, you have a very, very disparate kind of cultures under it, so that it, it influences everything. But well, right, it influences everything linguistically and culturally to a degree. I mean, by the time you get to Egypt, at the time of Rome or at the time of Caesar, what it, what it, what even is it? Yeah, you know, Cleopatra is is the Ptolemies are more Greek than they are Egyptian. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, but the they, fact the fact that the Ptolemies have to learn Egyptian says something about yeah, them, so. yeah. So <laughs> yeah, something interesting there. But anyway, we we digress a little bit. <laughs> but okay, so the fourth kingdom strong as iron because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. It is the the kingdom that crushes. I think it's fair to say that this is parallel with the fourth beast again in Daniel 7, which is described as being this kind of unearthly kind of creature, uh, unlike any other beast. You know, it, Daniel's not really able to describe it very effectively uh, mm-hmm. because it's so different. And in this case, I think it's fair to say we have a representation of Rome. Rome being the one which conquers the, the known world at the time, which overruns all things which tries to bring all things under itself. And I and I think that it's described as iron partly because of its, you know, shattering, you know, it is strong, it is bringing all things to itself, but it is also degraded in the sense that it's trying to melt like weld all of these things together mm-hmm. in a I guess you could say in a rule of law, like the 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 the, the strongest worldly attempt to actually bring all things into subjection apart from God. Mm-hmm. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think, I mean, given what we see, yeah. So, okay. And then the the, the feet or the toes in particular are described as being partly iron, partly clay. I think that this is representative of the descendants of Rome, the kingdoms which come out of Rome. Um, you see this also again a little bit in Daniel 7, 
I think this is representative of what comes as a result of the breakup of Rome. Yeah. Um, so a couple of notes on that. One, yeah, because we're going to get to the kingdom of God here. Rome doesn't fall at the ascension of Christ or at the resurrection of Christ. Right. Rome has a steady decline, has, has sort of a rise a little bit, and then a steady decline centuries after. Okay, so we're in right. the 400s before she falls. And so then you have, what do you do with the feet, basically? And that's where the disagreement comes in. Uh, because you can take the dispensational thing and say, oh, it's a revived Roman Empire that's going to, you know, come. And yeah. I don't know, it, it seems much more uh, clear here that this, that this is just the divided kingdoms of, kingdoms of the world after that. All due respect to the Holy Roman Empire, they were not really as glorious as ancient Rome. Get out. The, <laughs> but they never quite reach it. It's always something all pretending, aping what was there before. And every empire since then has wanted the glory of Rome or the glory of one of the great empires. Right. And have, have never achieved it. And so, uh, you know, even Brit- Britain's empire is... It's really not comparable. I mean, there's a cargo cult for Prince Philip or whatever, but it's not the same. Right. And and so, yeah, Britain was a mighty empire. America had a good run at it. Yeah, but we never really saw anything quite like what we saw with ancient Rome. And, and so it, these kingdoms sort of pop up, these empires pop up, but they don't last nearly as long. Or, or if they do, they're not, they don't last as strong or they don't reach as far. Right. So, the, I mean, if, if you're saying that they're, they're borrowing some of the power of Rome, you know, there is a, there is, I mean, there is something of Rome in them. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And, and those little things last, but that's more of a testament to Rome than it is to anything. Right. Because, okay, well, our American empire, how, what, what, what is its lasting symbol? The McDonald's arches? <laughs> You know, is that going to last as long? And I love my country. I'm not, I'm, but I'm saying, I'm speaking of American imperialism, which, hey, I love the Panama Canal, love that nation. So I'm not against it. I'm simply saying, as far as long term impact, what will it, what will it look like? Will we have people talking about American culture a thousand years from now, in in a, in a yeah. meaningful way? You know, will, yeah. will, will we have SPQR memes? <laughs> and and, that, and so that's kind of what I'm saying. Like the British Empire has even a cultural force essentially ends within the, the lifetime of, of us. <laughs> and, right. and you don't feel its impact except in one major thing. Everybody's speaking English. Right. right. Which is not insignificant. When... But, but that's, that might fade too. Well, we won't. We won't quite get into that, but I, I I think when we're dealing with the the empires that come after, Daniel's focus is not so much on them because his focus turns to the the actual major thing which is happening, and that is the the stone not cut from hands which yeah. is growing and filling the earth. Well, and I guess I should say here at this point to go back to the dispensational thing. I've seen dispensational charts with the statue sort of on his side. I, we uh, used it and, as an image. Yeah, we did. Right. That's that's right. Um, but I've seen actually legible ones. And Fair. So I've seen where Roman Empire, the beast in Daniel 7, and the legs in the vision, 
the two legs are seen as the Eastern and Western church. And then the feet become the tribulation. And to me, that's just, you, that's, you can't, no, it doesn't, no. That, that dog won't hunt. <laughs> no. Yeah. We, we are, we're going to speak against that one with all that we yeah. have. So. And, and we, and I think tied up in that, and that's, this is something that's kind of implicit in a lot of dispensationalism that we don't notice is the idea of a great apostasy, the idea of the church being corrupted from almost the beginning. Right. When in reality, the Christianization of Rome helped us further Christianity in a way that we had not seen before. I mean, imagine hating on Constantine. Right. And, and But that's how pop, um, at least since the 19th century, that's how pop history has wanted to to portray the councils and things like that. Right. And yeah, so I just, I just don't see that as happening. I, I clearly see it as being the ancient Roman empire as we know it. And, and then these kind of little smaller, not insignificant, but smaller kingdoms that are represented by the feet. Right. Right. But I do think, I do think the focus, especially here in chapter two is the stone. Right, hundred percent. This is what has him bothered. I think more than anything, because right. this stone comes, destroys all of these kingdoms, and they're blown away and forgotten. Right, which is distressing to him because of he thinks of himself as a god, or at least mm-hmm. partly divine. And for him, and for this dream to basically say, you know, your kingdom is not only going to fall, but will be essentially forgotten in the in the minds of most men. Is something that he just can't, he just can't deal with it. Yeah, and so the stone comes, destroys all of them, and becomes a mighty mountain, right? And uh, fills the whole earth. And I do think with the stone growing, I think it's fair to say that we should see it as a, I, I you could call it a slow growth or something like that. The idea is is that this stone starts from very small beginnings, and it continues to grow and grow and grow and grow throughout time and it eventually becomes, you know, a great mountain. It becomes bigger than the statue. It becomes more permanent than the statue. It is the thing that actually endures. And the stone is the kingdom of God. Without question. Yeah. And I mean, and you have all throughout the new Testament and Colossians and revelation and second Thessalonians and the gospel and elsewhere, uh, the kingdom described and who is the head of the kingdom. The New Testament, the church, is pictured as a kingdom with right. Christ as king. Right. That's the king we respect here. Jesus Christ is king. And the gospel and the Great Commission is a conquering mission. And we sometimes forget that. And for whatever reason, because of the failures of certain Christian attempts at society, we think that then that, that a Christian kingdom is not worth fighting for or that there's no representation of it here on earth, which is patently false. That where the people of Christ are gathered, there's the kingdom of God, where the gospel is preached, the sacraments rightly administered. And I would submit that where those things are done, that God often gives great growth and, yes, prosperity to a nation. God does bless nations that way. There are promises about that. You know? right. um, there's also promises that evil men will be in power and will persecute you as well. So you got no guarantee of which one you're going to live in, but I, I'll I will stand on societies are better when they're governed by Christian law. Oh, without question. <laughs> I mean, 
How could you even argue otherwise? Yeah, so we can't mistake civil governments for the kingdom of God, but we can recognize that civil governments can honor the kingdom of God, and that kingdom of God will come. Now, now what our listeners have probably thought I said was, it's an earthly kingdom, or it's a millennial kingdom, or something like that. No, but what will happen is, Jesus Christ will return, the new heavens, uh, uh, everything will be destroyed and with fire, Okay, and purged and clean, the new heavens and the new earth will be joined together in an everlasting kingdom. That's the biblical presentation. So it's not a thousand years of prosperity or anything like that. It's not some golden age. It's not a city that that we're necessarily going to build with our hands here and now. But rather, we are working, gathering people into that kingdom. The Holy Spirit is using the word to bring people in. And and so Jesus shows up with the other inheritors of the kingdom, you know, uh, holy angels, and and the and the and the righteous are being pulled up out of their graves and everything. So the kingdom is pretty big right from the start when Jesus comes back. Right. Uh, the sea gives up her dead. All of this, the, all the dead are judged, and then the righteous, you know, those who trusted in Christ are everlasting heirs of the kingdom. This newly inaugurated kingdom. We shouldn't, and we shouldn't think of the kingdom as this purely, I don't want to say otherworldly kind of thing. Like it has nothing to do with the kingdoms of the world. I mean, because the the stone is depicted as destroying the kingdoms. Yeah, <laughs> right. And and it's going to replace that. The the paganism that dominated people's lives before, you know, when someone like John the Baptist declares the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or right. Jesus comes in and says, my kingdom is not of this world or whatever. They are declaring that there is indeed a kingdom and that as you become a member of it, you change. And as right. more and more people convert, the whole nation changes. It's a pretty simple principle, but we've become so blackpilled on everything that we forget that this can happen. Now, I again, things can and perhaps will get worse. Let's not be naive here. But let's also not pretend that that we can just give in to fear and despair. That, that this is an actual battle that we fight, a spiritual battle primarily, but one with earthly consequences. You know, sometimes we think of ourselves as being almost like, um, like let's say, American first, and then I happen to be a Christian, you know, who is an American kind of a thing. When yeah. in reality, I have been called out of this, you know, what I am in this world to be a Christian. You know, right. there, there is a sense in which I am a Christian. And I have been called to be a Christian, and that is my identity. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, for, you know, you do fight for your country, fight for your people. You know, obligatory right. disclaimer, disclaimer there. But just fighting for a certain label because that's what you were born as is not right. Because you will find that the culture and perhaps the country you live in is at odds with the scriptures and at odds with what Christ has commanded. Then you can't have a divided loyalty. The ancient Christians wouldn't even burn a pinch of incense to Caesar. Right. Even though, I mean, they are Romans, yeah. and yet they wouldn't give in. If Paul's a Roman citizen. Right. 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 You, you think he's capitulating? <laughs> you think he's saying, hey, reasonable measures? No, he's not. And, that's, and he's martyred for it. So yeah, uh, there, there's a lot of things to talk about, and but that's what happened. The rise and fall of these great empires, which in, in some of them still inspire us today, 
but they are all going to be blown away in the wind. Yeah. And the memory of them will. In the kingdom of heaven, there's going to be no glory of Alexander the Great. There will only be the glory of the eternal God, his glory alone. There won't even be a memory of these pagan empires, unless it's a memory of God conquering them, unless sure. it's a memory of that is in praise to him for, for bringing down Babylon and all of the other Babylons that come after it. Or if there were any which came out of those kingdoms, you know, the memory of them being becoming a part of the kingdom of God, you know, absolutely being gathered together. I mean, there's that too. But yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. The, the worldly glory and the things of this world will blow away in the wind, but the kingdom of God will go on forever. With that, we're going to take our next break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken right after this. back everyone you are listening to a word fitly spoken i'm willie grills here with zell and heidi we're talking the second chapter of daniel well we went over the vision and we talked about some of the great empires of the world and then we began to talk about the stone that comes in and uh, begins to destroy all those kingdoms okay now there's something interesting though at the end of daniel chapter 2 that we want to touch on king nebuchadnezzar recognizes that daniel's vision and interpretation of the dream is true. And so the king falls upon his face, pays homage to Daniel, and commanded that an offering of incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Now, this is that instance where you're seeing Daniel again start, or excuse me, uh, Nebuchadnezzar again, starting to get it. But then he's going to throw the boys in the fiery furnace. Right. Um, He's going to be made low like an ox, like a farm animal, and then he's going to repent. But he still doesn't quite get it. Now, I think there's something... To talk about there, then, if we are living in the kingdoms of the brittle feet, as it were, right? what does that say for us? Is there a place for national repentance? Is there a place for, you know, what does it mean for a nation, one, when the leaders are following after demons, false gods, or just plain not honoring the one true God? And what happens when the leaders go after the true God? I mean, no one would deny that there is something godly in a nation repenting, right? Mm -hmm. If we have an entire nation turning towards the living God and coming to believe in him, 
that is a very great thing, and we should not undervalue that. I mean, like we've kind of been saying before, there is something good in a nation calling God the Lord. We should not belittle that. We should not make that into something less than what it is. There is such a thing as a Christian nation. Yeah, and it is, it's becoming really popular to to say, well, the problem with American Christianity is that uh, we pretended we were a Christian nation. No, the, the problem is uh, that we failed to pass the gospel on to the next generations. You know, how any, and I've seen Lutheran pastors tout and promote and just gush over the book Jesus and John Wayne, basically how white evangelicalism ruined American Christianity. How anybody could get, could read that cover of that book and decide, yeah, I'm going to open it up and read it beyond me. <laughs> and yet people do. There, there's, and and what it comes down to is it, you're, you're not really critiquing evangelicalism in a fair way. I, I think that a lot of people just are embarrassed of the idea that, you know what, actually their ancestors might have actually been more serious than them. Oh, 100%. Yeah. <laughs> because I'm not going to throw these the our forefathers out like that and throw them under the bus. Because all that that is packaged in, it's it's got it's it's just plain old deny the scriptures with a nice bow on it where you can be cool. And a guy, there are guys out there who know better, but they don't want to be seen as fundamentalist or evangelical, and so they'd rather be identified with 1960s liberal Lutheranism because at least they had chasubles and got to pretend that they were academics. Now. We have our critiques of evangelicalism right here on the podcast, so you know where we stand. But I'm just very uncomfortable with any idea of saying, yeah, America never was a Christian nation, because usually what they mean by that is, and it never will be. Right. Oh, yeah. And, and the corollary to that is, and it shouldn't be, because because my two kingdoms are some nonsense. Like, yeah, because you know, how often do you hear these same guys then come around and say, I'd rather have a, a good pagan ruler rather than a, a bad Christian one. It's like, uh, do you do you really? I mean, are, <laughs> right. I, I just don't understand this desire to completely remove ourselves from the public sphere as if religion had nothing to do with government. Yeah, and I think that's why we, why we lose ground. Like, because we want to be, you know, losers, I guess. Like, I just, I don't want to pay a jizz yet. I'm sorry. I don't want to do it. Like, right. I, I kind of get, I get, I do get the argument that they're making to a degree, but a lot of times though, what they're, what they're, they're, they're putting up some like revered Muslim ruler versus a pretend Christian American ruler. Right. Because a bad Christian is one thing, but we're actually dealing with rulers who just plain never were Christians. If we're going to be honest with ourselves. Right, right. And that's kind of, I mean, and maybe and maybe that's why they try to do it too. It's like, oh, see, then we can get out of this situation. We don't have to deal with rulers who don't even pretend to be Christian. We'll just submit ourselves and we won't have a, another issue with our conscience, right? Yeah. And, and the fact of the matter is, while there's still lip service paid to a lot of Christians, if you look at, it is not Christianity, as far as, far as religion goes, that really dominates that's not the dominant religion of those in, in the high, high positions of power. Right. And we know that uh, because Christians wouldn't, this wouldn't be there. So, <laughs> so we're dealing with, you know, today's context is very different because uh, we want to make a distinction between actual professing Christians who are leaders and the snake oil salesmen of all types 
you know, right. the, the pretend ones. Because when there are just Christian rulers, I think that that's a blessing. It's a good thing. Oh, yeah. 100%. I mean, even... I mean, even think back in with historical examples, when you have kings uh, who did good for the, the benefit of the church, I'm thinking of like the Eastern Roman empires, you know, yeah. the, the good ones there. I'm thinking of Charlemagne. I'm thinking, you know, they, they were blessings. We can't say that they weren't. Yeah, and even Luther recognized this. You know, I, I alluded, like two kingdoms gets confused because in the two kingdoms idea, remember, both kingdoms are supposed to honor God. Right. It's not a secular kingdom and a religious kingdom. <laughs> Luther certainly doesn't see it that way. When Luther's like, you have a holy obligation to commit these acts upon this group of people, he's obviously seeing it rather differently than we are. Trust not in princes, they are but mortal. I believe in that. But we also pray for our leaders. And when we pray that they will have wisdom, we mean wisdom according to God. Right. That's what we're praying for every week in the church. Not just that they would be secular humanists who would make our life comfortable. And that's really it. And maybe maybe that's the problem. We we have such a low view of authority and a low view of our leaders or perhaps just low expectations. Sure. And I want to be left alone as much as the next guy. But all we've got lazy leaders who are still more involved in our day-to-day lives than they've ever been. Because you can't even post what you want on social media without, you know, <laughs> or whatever. So anyway. Yeah, no, I mean, so so when we're dealing with the question of what do we do with a Nebuchadnezzar, right? What do you do with a, a ruler who conceives of himself as, let's say, being semi-divine? Because I, I would make the argument that a lot of our problem in our current time, is that we have governments which think of themselves in divine terms, even if they don't use the language. Absolutely. Now, I I do believe that even though a lot of world governments give the appearance of secularism, that there is a dark, malevolent, spiritual practice at the top. Just want to get that out there, in case you all didn't figure that out yet. (laughs) And... And so they do believe in the divine, but not the true divine. Right. And they believe that they are the ones who know what is best for us. And so, yeah, if we can have a secular government that could truly leave us alone, that would be fine. If we could have the American ideal, quote unquote, of just a nation where we sort of tolerate denominational differences, right. um, that would be one thing. But we actually can't live in a world like that. Right. Uh, and, we, and we've seen that. Uh, some force... Some worldview, at least some ideology, is going to win out, and people are going to seek the power and use that, and, and use that power to, to force that worldview, which is very effective. But it is very spiritual, even though it's all wrapped up in scientific or supposedly secular principles, because they claim for themselves uh, divine rights, and they claim for themselves. I mean, you, you hear it all the time. So we say, as Americans that these rights are given to us by our creator. We can debate over that, but it quickly has turned into, oh, we have rights because the government says so. Ergo, <laughs> I mean, the government is our creator. I mean, I mean, I don't know how you could come away with not. Yeah, not that's how people look at that. Or, you know, we know what's best for you, so you're going to do this. Um, all the way down to trying to legislate what people eat 
and things right. like that. And the Bible says you can't judge someone based on what he eats. <laughs> Even though, curiously, they want to control what you eat. Like, like, like Michael Bloomberg, you, you remember he was like trying to ban or did ban large sodas. And then right. now we can't even say that large sodas and diet contribute to health issues without being shamed. So we're just a very silly society right now is what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, but but they always are claiming to know what's best. And, and there is this idea that with just one more election, we're going to have our savior. One more election, we'll get that right person in. We cast our politicians in, in holy lights. I mean, pictures with halos around them. Yeah. Well, and I, I I like how you put that because unfortunately this happens on both sides, right? Oh, we will fix all of the problems of our nation as long as we get this guy into power. You know, yeah. this political solution will be the the end of all of our troubles. We'll get back to normal. We'll get back to what we remember it being. That I, how can you not see that as being Messiah-like language? Yeah, and you know, I mean, even when they, was it. Cyrus that they were comparing Trump to, right? Which is both cool, but also a little bit disturbing, right? <laughs> I mean, because the Bible calls Cyrus a Messiah, but I mean that—that's neither here nor there. Yeah, and dispensationalism really has co-opted neoconservatism, right? And, and has influenced our domestic and international policy to a degree unseen, probably. But again, that's what you get when you're syncretic, right? So (laughs) nothing perfect here. And yet we are called to obey authority. We're called to honor authority. And so therefore we pray for good authorities. You know, we want, we wanted the Roman emperor to embrace Christianity. We want our presidents to embrace that. Not only because they're presidents, not merely because they're presidents, but because at the end of the day, they're also um, humans who need a savior. They are men in need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every man needs that, no matter how great. And unfortunately, the men who are entrusted with great power often have mighty falls because of that. They right. often suffer swift uh, destruction, as is the case with you know, Daniel 4, which we'll get into later, right. and things like that. You, you see swift end to rulers, and really, though, everybody has a swift end if you think about it. Right, because the light switch is on, and then the light switch is off. After that, you know, it is what it is. Well, so maybe maybe, that, maybe that's a good way of of transitioning into another idea that I think we can't overlook in this discussion. In that, God is the one which is who is truly in control, right? Because yeah. God raises up, God brings down, and the the governments of the world, uh, Nebuchadnezzar in particular. And I would argue the uh, the brittle kingdoms that we live in, especially in our present day, think of themselves as being in control of the flow of history, right? Uh, kind of masters yeah. of their own destiny kind of a thing. Right. They always tell us you don't want to be on the wrong side of history when right. they're trying to make us do something. <laughs> yeah, they, they really do think that they're going to control. I mean, we, we change time. Like we pass legislation to keep fake time. That, nothing makes sense anymore. Uh, <laughs> so you're not a daylight savings time respecter? Is that what I you're don't know. I, I don't even know if I'm a Gregorian calendar respecter at this point. Old old Julian, please. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but no, but I mean, this is the hubris of it all. Is what is what bothers me. Right. 
You know, I mean, even just down to engineered meats, on a visceral level, that's not right. Cloning should be illegal. Uh, this kind of a, a selective gene modification, that, that this is legal or will be legal in many Western countries is, like we've gone from just, hey, I'm a God, worship me, to I'm going to try and do God stuff now. Right. And and they're doing it as if God's not going to be upset with this. So here's the thing. God will bless nations, but God also hands nations over to judgment. And in Scripture, it invariably looks like handing them over to a reprobate mind. And Nebuchadnezzar is going to be handed over to a demented mind for a spell. Right. And we'll get into that, you know, a couple episodes from now. Well, but I mean, the the very idea of cloning or something like that, or the very idea of the government being able to tell us what marriage is, or the very idea of the government saying, this is what it means to be male or female. These questions or ideas should be unthinkable. We should, I mean, how can, how can we in our hubris even come to the conclusion that we can say this is who we are that i can say that you know male is female or female is male or whatever it may be i mean it it shows just how bold and brazen we have become because nebuchadnezzar as pompous as he is i don't think ever would have come to these kinds of ideas right. it just wouldn't enter his mind it's insane oh, Alexander on the Great, on the, on the other hand. Uh, but, well, that's neither here nor there. But <laughs> but don't you dare say anything about Julius Caesar. <laughs> but then it comes nothing into it, is what I'm saying. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> this part, we will shut it, we will shut it down. Uh, we, we, we will break it off into horrible spinoffs if this keeps up. Uh, <laughs> but... Uh, and you see that in, the, in people's thinking today, we we must pray and hope and trust and put our faith in God enlightening our country and the people around us. Because you know what? We actually do love our country and we love our people and we want them to know Christ and we have to pray for them because interacting with people today is is, is so different than it was just a little bit ago. People do not think in the same way. They don't process information in the same way. And we are having to undo some very malicious forms of thinking and some very demonic forms of thinking. You know, we, we did a whole episode on territorial spirits. So if you want to know who's really pulling the strings and things like that. But the fact of the matter is this stone has come and it is growing into a mighty mountain. And it is still day, but the night is coming. And we see the night falling upon many nations and upon many communities. But the light shines in the darkness. And so it is still day. Darkness is spreading, but the light is still going out. And so we must preach the gospel. And we must pray for our country. We must pray for our families. And we must pray for uh, those around us. And not just pray, we must contend. And we must talk with everyone and it's going to look different depending on who you're talking to. I understand that there's no one size fits all version of this. And yet we must do it. We're going to, you know, we're, we're going to contend for the faith. We're going to keep preaching the gospel and the Lord is going to keep adding day by day to the number of those being saved. And we're going to have to pull men out of the fire. We're going to have to do a lot of things, but 
even though it is prophesied that all nations will fall, that all empires will fall, the gospel is for everybody who lives under those dominions. And the spreading of the gospel is the growing of that stone into a holy mountain. Yeah, no matter how imposing Nebuchadnezzar may seem to be, no matter how uh, frightening his power may seem to be to us, yet his kingdom is not the one that endures. Right. It is the kingdom of God that will go on forever. Right. And, you know, once we get around to the handwriting on the wall and Daniel and things like that, we'll see how swiftly uh, nations are, are destroyed or how swiftly nations fall or swiftly leaders fall. But the story of Daniel, it's an interesting one because it's going to be time and time again, the victory of God and then these esoteric visions and things like that. But Daniel doesn't really have the happiest of endings either. And yet he's an heir of the of, of eternal life. Right. And all of the apostles who preach, you know, the prophets and the apostles all suffer bad fates as far as the world sees them. But they are inheritors of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that we are furthering by preaching the word because God has promised this word won't return void. We are post-Pentecost. The Spirit is here. The Spirit has descended, and the Spirit is going out, and the Word is being preached, and men are being cut to the quick. They're being cut to the heart, and they're being liberated from the kingdom of darkness. And so the darkness isn't winning. The light's winning. And so Babylon's fallen, but the kingdom of God is risen. And I think the one thing that we need to hold on to in the midst of all of this is the fact that God is in control. You know, God is sovereign. God rules over all things. And that really is the great message of the book of Daniel, that the kingdoms will fall, but God is the one in control of history. And we will see that victory when Christ returns. Amen. Well, this has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zoe and Heidi. God love you, and God bless. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter.